Hello, welcome to Nerd vs. Nerd, the podcast that explores the intersection of nerd culture with politics and identity. I'm Mike. And I'm Anjali. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Ironheart, the, I don't know if it's a, it's not really a new comic, but the first trade paperback dropped, what, two weeks ago? A week ago? Yes. And, like, it's going to be in mainstream bookstores on the 23rd. So we thought it would be a good idea to talk about Ironheart. But first, we had Comic-Con this weekend. And there were some big announcements, especially regarding Phase 4 of the MCU. So what did we learn? We learned a lot of things. I don't even know where to start, honestly. Um, So, I mean, we definitely knew about the Disney streaming shows. Mm -hmm. Uh, We knew about Black Widow. We knew about the Eternals. I think we knew about Shang-Chi. We just learned about Thor 4 earlier last week. Uh, what else did we learn, though? So, they're starting with Black Widow. That is in spring of 2020. So, then, yeah. so next the, year, we're getting two movies. Yeah, we're getting two movies. Black Widow in the spring, and then The Eternals in November. Then in 2021, they go back to the three-movie schedule. It's going to start off with Shang-Chi in, I think it was February. Then Doctor Strange in May. And then Thor 4 in November. And then those are the only dates that they announced but they tease blade which is tbd um and they also like hey we have mutants too and the fantastic four did thing like we have we have plans for them we just don't know what they are yet super exciting yeah. super exciting i think so they're only doing two movies next year but these disney streaming shows mm-hmm. i think they're gonna start rolling some of them out right next year as well yeah i believe so um, yeah, I'm kind of excited about a couple of these shows, like Loki and then Falcon and Winter Soldier. I'm really excited about WandaVision would be pretty good. I think the what if sounds yeah, pretty cool. Cause they had a whole comic series of like, what if this happened? And Peggy then... Carter became Captain America instead of you know, yeah. Steve Rogers. Uh huh. That, that would be an interesting, an interesting episode of that show. Then they also announced a Hawkeye show. Like who cares about that? But I think it, he's going to be um, training his daughter to become Hawkeye, I thought. was Oh, that that is a show I might be interested in. I just don't care about Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye. I'm, I just don't. Okay, we don't <laughs> need to go back to um, our Endgame episode yeah. and rehash that conversation. I'm especially excited to see the Disney streaming shows sort of elevated to the status of these movies. That, mm-hmm. you know, they're not just some side thing that they're just going to do mm-hmm. but that it seems like maybe they're going to really try to integrate the movies and tv shows together which i think would be pretty exciting to see yeah i hope so because they already have marvel tv shows they have agents of shield which is been on they're in the sixth season now they announced at comic-con that the seventh season will be the last um but then they also have all the netflix shows and none of these shows ever had an impact in the movies. And I'm not even sure if they ever were even mentioned in the movies. I don't think they were, but they did mention, like, the Battle of New York and a lot of the Netflix yeah. shows. So, like, yeah, so, like, the movies would have an impact on the shows, but it, it, it wasn't a, a two-way street. I mean, as proof of that, you know, Mahershala Ali, he was cottonmouth in season one of Luke Cage. I'm like, oh, he was. Yeah. yeah. And so, now he's going to be Blade. So clearly there's not intended to be a relation yeah. between the two. Yeah, which is kind of sad. Uh, I think that was a missed opportunity for the MCU. But 
I think it's going to be hard for them to not do that now that they have all the movie actors in TV shows. I could see them not like not having that happen, not having the TV shows impact the movies because one of the criticisms against the MCU, especially in the beginning, was like, well, why do I have to watch this other movie to understand everything that's going on in this movie? And I think it's a much bigger commitment to ask of someone like, hey, watch this entire TV show. Absolutely. Um, even if they are going to be shorter seasons, and I don't even know if they're going to be shows. They might just be an eight-episode miniseries, and, and that's it. Like, there won't be a season two of you know, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, maybe just the, the eight episodes and that'll be it. But yeah, it might be, it might be hard to ask that of someone. I don't know. Be... I think there, I think the demand is there though. I mean, they've got a pretty loyal, yeah, big so. audience. And so I imagine that, I mean, it's definitely gonna be more homework for people going into these movies, uh-huh. but I think there's an interest in the yeah. demand. But for I mean, it. like, that's the thing with the movies is even what, like you can watch every single one of those movies except Endgame and Infinity War, like on their own, they're 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 all standalone. They're just they're like little bits, like five percent of each movie. You'll have a better understanding of it if you've seen. I imagine it'll be like that. Yeah. I think that's how they'll do these TV shows, where mm-hmm. you know, if you did see it, bonus, maybe there's something in there that you otherwise wouldn't realize is a reference to the show. Yeah. But I think they're gonna probably do them in a way that they can be sort of a. A standalone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it would have been like really cool if in Homecoming they made a reference to the Defenders, mm-hmm. you know, or, or something like that. But hopefully, ex- you know, experiment a little bit with with uh, that sort of that sort of thing. I think it's pretty exciting. I will say too, sort of looking at the lineup for Phase Four and beyond, there was definitely strong female representation in mm-hmm. nearly all of these shows and movies. I mean, Thor Four, so Natalie Portman is going to be. Lady Thor. Yeah, um, I'm excited about that. They talked about a Captain Marvel too. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the Black Widow movie, which I'm, eh, I'm, I'm I... between between the lack of character development for Black Widow over the first three phases of the movie, like sort of making my enthusiasm for that character lacking, plus the more problematic things that Scarlett Johansson has said in the past week makes me like I'll go see it but I I'm not excited for it like I am say uh Doctor Strange or Thor 4. I'm surprised they didn't announce ScarJo as the new Blade. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Yeah because she can play anything. She can play any rock, tree, uh-huh. anything that she wants. Yeah, I because mean, <laughs> she's an actress. That's what she does. Aside from not... I I do like the Black Widow character, even uh-huh. though she was underdeveloped throughout yeah. you know, movies to date. The reason I'm not super excited for this movie as we come to learn more details about it is because I don't want to see another Russian spy movie. Mm-hmm. And that's my hunch of what it's going to be. And I just think... We've seen that a million times, just even in the last couple of years. What was that new movie, Anna or whatever that just oh, came out? Yeah, stuff I mean, like I'm like, do we? I, it's just boring, frankly. Mm-hmm. But maybe we'll be completely wrong. Yeah, I mean, like it's taking place between the events of Civil War and um, Infinity War. Mm-hmm. Like the USSR is not a thing, so I'd be curious. Yeah. Like I'm, I don't say I'm cautiously, cautiously optimistic. But I think there's there's room to surprise me there with 
like an interesting and compelling story. Yeah, so overall, I think I'm really excited about the direction that they're moving in with the shows and the movies. I'm excited about some of the directors that they're bringing in for Mm -hmm. the upcoming movies. And I I think they're continuing to make great strides toward uh, diversity. Yeah. And just not just diversity in terms of uh, race and gender and, and directors and actors that are brought onto these projects, but also in the sense of kind of you know, we talk a lot about world building and I really feel like we're going to get to see very different types of worlds. And and I'm really excited about that. Mm -hmm. You know, so we talked about things that they mentioned. What they didn't mention, obviously, is any sort of an Avengers movie. Um, And so I think for now, I'm okay with that because I'm excited to sort of, you know, go a little deeper into some of these worlds. You know, what is the world of Shang-Chi going to look like? Mm -hmm. Uh, I anticipate Thor 4 will kind of remind us a lot of like Ragnarok and I'm excited. I and hope may- so. The like poster for the, it, it's very sort of like 1980s Technicolor sort of hairband. I love like, that. I love yeah. that these movies can have s- super different look and feel and tone and, and that's really exciting to me. And mm-hmm. so I'm just really encouraged. Yeah, I'm... I'm a little underwhelmed by the announcement, but that could just be the end game hangover. You know, like that was this huge thing. And like, how do you follow that up? It's like, well, you really can't. So here's what we have. It'll be good. And I'm excited to see a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And I think the important thing is that sort of this announcement sort of covers their upcoming projects through 2022. That's a relatively short time frame. I mm-hmm. think in the past when they've done these announcements, it's been for like, what, like five years or so, yeah. a bit longer of a time period. And so I think, you know, we just got to, in Feige, we trust. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, the, I mean, they've already taken a bunch of characters that no one knew and turned them into characters that people cared about. I, I trust them to be able to do it again, especially if they... If they, you know, bring in, you know, Ryan Coogler and um, if they bring back like the Russo brothers who who had a little tease about like, yeah, we do Secret Wars if, if Marvel <laughs> wanted us to. So like maybe that's a thing that'll happen, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I trust them to bring in directors with their own voice and let them tell interesting and compelling stories. I agree. And so speaking of things that were not mentioned, sort of going into Comic-Con, there was some speculation that maybe they would talk about bringing Ironheart into the MCU. Yeah. And so I think, you know, sort of, well, I can't talk, to transition into our kind of main discussion about Ironheart, you know, who is this person? Uh, In the the aftermath of Endgame, there's been a lot of discussion. Who is going to take up... Uh, the mantle of Iron Man now that Tony Stark is dead is it going to be Peter Parker you know is it going to be Shuri who's it going to be and in the comic books the person who takes up the mantle of Iron Man is actually Riri Williams aka Ironheart Mm -hmm. and so to talk a little bit about this character uh, for those who don't know and even for those who are reading and might not know as much about the origins so Riri Williams was a character created by Brian Michael Bendis, who has since um, moved on to DC. Mm-hmm. He created this character back in 2015. Uh, she first appeared in the Invincible Iron Man run, and then uh, she also appeared in Champions, sort of an, an ensemble cast. But 
beginning last year in 2018, uh, they announced the launch of her first solo title series. And so that's what we're going to be talking about mostly is her solo title series. And we'll talk a little more later in the episode about some of the controversy around this character, especially the character's solo title series. But I think for now, we really want to foreground just all the incredible things that are happening in the solo title series. And so where do you want to start, Mike? Uh, well, let's talk about the character, so, like Riri's sort of origin story. You know, she started off in Invincible Iron Man, and she, in in that book, she was a 15-year-old girl, right? And yeah. she wasn't yet accepted to MIT. And over the course of that book, MIT offered her a... Scholarship, yeah, right? scholarship, like, hey, come, come work for us at MIT. You'll have your own lab and everything. And so that's kind of where the, the solo title starts, is she's at MIT. Uh, I think she's 16 at this point, right? Mm-hmm. She has her own armor. It's not like an old Iron Man suit. She has her, has her own armor. Yes. Um, what she makes from parts, she gets around campus. Uh-huh. Uh, that she makes at campus. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit about the issues <laughs> with MIT uh, at some point, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so like the solo title, I think really establishes her world better than Invincible Iron Man did. Sure. So in Invincible Iron Man, I mean, it's in the title. She's literally Tony Jr. Mm-hmm. And so she creates, she recreates the, the Tony Stark or the Iron Man armor. She meets Tony Stark. He becomes a mentor to her. He sort of, you know, she says she wants to sort of be about this superhero life and he encourages her. She has, you know, he creates an AI of himself for her. And, you know, when he goes into a coma in that series, she literally takes up the mantle of Iron Man. And so the thing in that series is it's Riri is very much, you know, that we understand this character in her relationship to Tony Stark and to Iron Man. And we don't really, I think, get a great feel for who she is outside of that. We get sort of bits and pieces here and there of sort of what her motive is for wanting to become a superhero, but, and a bit of her sort of character, her quirks, but not really. Uh, And the solo title is really about who is Riri Williams, who is Ironheart, outside of Tony Stark's shadow, who is this person, who are the people and the places in her world. And more than anything else, I think the solo title does an incredible job of just that of her characterization Mm -hmm. we really get a feel for who the person in the suit is this is not about the suit this is not about even a superhero this is about a girl Mm -hmm. who is making decisions to become a superhero and understanding why and understanding what her world looks like and so let's talk a little bit about what what does the world of riri williams look like yeah so she's from chicago and the book starts with her at mit but i think starting with the second episode she's like no i'm just episode <laughs> sorry yeah the second issue sorry uh she she's kind of like stressed out working at mit and i think that partially the the dean at mit the sort of like strings that were attached to getting the lab at mit and she's like this is too much i want to go home and visit my visit my mom visit my friend and so like starting with issue two it's almost entirely set in chicago right 
Right. And so, like, I don't know that much about Chicago. I've never been there, but I feel like, I mean, Eve Ewing is from Chicago, so I think she infuses a lot of her experiences in that city to make it more grounded, more believable, more real. What's also exciting, so Eve Ewing is the writer for the solo solo title series. So yes, she's born and raised in Chicago, currently lives there, but she also has lived in Boston because she went to she did her PhD at Harvard. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll talk later about the many ways what she brings to this character. But I think it's incredible that sort of the, the two places that were introduced to in Riri's world, Boston and Chicago, that the person writing this character has lived experience mm-hmm. in both of those places. Um, and I think place is definitely a part of this story. It's not Boston and Chicago are not a backdrop to to the, the action in the in the comic book. They're sort of characters, more so Chicago, I think, than Boston so far. Mm -hmm. But it's a character in and of itself. And I think there's, at the beginning of, is it issue three or four? It literally opens up in Chicago. And it sort of talks about the perceptions of Chicago by people outside the city. Oh, people consider this a dangerous place. And they're Mm -hmm. sort of playing around with this idea of, well, okay, why is it dangerous? Yeah. Um, there's this one panel where they, sh- you know, they say some people call our city dangerous. And there's a police car, and there's a police car sort of parked on a corner, and then there's some people hanging out on the corner. And I think even there, you can read into it and say, okay, yeah, some people call our city dangerous. Is it because of these people on the corner? Is it because of our police officers and what they're mm-hmm. doing? Like, what? Well, let's play with that. Yeah, I remember that that sequence. I thought it was interesting. Like, oh people have this perception of our city but our city the people who live in our city is uh, they're just like everyone else they're just trying to get by and maybe they're poorer and have fewer resources here but that's all they're doing they're just trying to live their lives so yeah i like that sequence a lot they that first sort of big bad villain is just a corrupt chicago politician because like (laughs) there's never been one of those before so i think yeah, just bringing in elements of Chicago that like a little stereotypical, especially like the corrupt Chicago. But I mean, like that's a or thing. Or even just, I think it's interesting but, that you know when Riri sort of encounters the Chicago Police Department, the first thing she does is she puts her hands up. So she's in her armor. Yeah. She's a superhero, and even as soon as she encounters the police, mm-hmm. her hands immediately go up. And so, this is a story that's definitely grounded in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're right where Riri we sort of see her sort of struggling to navigate these different places she she sort of calls home whether it's her lab whether it's Chicago and sort of this feeling of like she cares about these places but her sort of relationship to them is uneasy so I don't know we want to talk about MIT and her lab and the issues there Mm -hmm. I mean we can Uh, so she has a lab at MIT and in the first couple pages of the first issue, like she walks in like, oh, hey, there's people in my lab. Who are these people? And it's the dean. He's like, oh, I told them about you and they want to meet you. And she talks about how, like, well, this is my lab. And she meant like, like, I don't feel comfortable with you putting me on display like this, you know? And then like something happens with one of the pieces of equipment and like, like laser beam shootout and like no one gets hurt but someone could have you know and the dean's like why why are you doing this and Riri's like look 
I wasn't expecting people to come by. Like, this is a lab with dangerous, like, instruments, not a zoo. <laughs> like, you can't put me on display like this. Yeah, so... I think, I think that is very relatable content, especially as a person of color who's, you know, sort of been the recipient of scholarships or mm -hmm. been sort of admitted to these kind of more exclusive spaces and this feeling of like, oh, this is this tremendous opportunity. You should be so grateful. But sometimes there's these strings attached that sort of, you know, it's not all that it seems all the time. And sometimes people feel like you you owe them something. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, you, yeah, you're given access to these resources or these great opportunities. And then you sort of owe people something in return or people sort of feel like they can sort of, mm -hmm. there's not that sense of, um, that she has ownership or privacy over this, that they just kind of have access to her. That, yeah, like you said, she's on display for these people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she's obviously very frustrated with that. And I think that is just super relatable. Uh, well, the other thing that, I mean, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but so in the in Invincible Iron Man, as you mentioned, she reverse engineers the Tony Stark armor in her MIT dorm room, and she and she does this kind of using things that she acquires from across the campus. Mm -hmm. Some people would say stealing, I guess, but I think it is worth noting that there is a very strong culture at MIT of hacking, yeah. where you know. Sort of this idea of like sort of innovation and creativity and playing around with the resources on campus is something that is welcomed and even encouraged. And so, you know, I, th I think that's worth, you know, that context is important because I feel like that's the thing. Oh, she stole this stuff to, you know, to make the suit. I don't know. I don't know how, if that impacts her characterization, but I feel like people could read into that or not read into that however they want to right i think for people who know the history at mit they to be like oh that makes sense that is something an mit student would do mm -hmm. where if you have say a white dude who <laughs> has preconceived notions like oh like you know it would like sort of like feed into to those preconceived notions which is we talked a uh, lot about place sort of uh, the places that are important in riri's world Let's talk about the people. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things about Riri is that she's a little socially inept, I guess. She's a, she's a tech genius. Mm -hmm. She's an incredible problem solver. Yeah. Uh, the, we see in this series the types of tools and other inventions that she comes up with. And it's amazing, whether it's AI, whether it's, you know, kind of different gadgets. But when it comes to navigating sort of relationships with other people she's not the best yeah and like they sort of started that in invincible iron man number one where Riri is five years old and her parents take her to like a, a psychologist or something like we don't know what's going on and the psychologist like your daughter is a super genius and you're gonna have to give her we're going to have to find a way to give her like the, the mental stimulation she needs so she doesn't get bored and everything. But you as, as parents are going to have to sort of bring her out of that really technical, very sort of intelligent world. Like show her that there's a world outside, you know, so she like makes friends with, you know, quote unquote normal people, you know, where she experiences life and not just you know, is is face deep in, in gadgets and technology. But the other part of that is, okay, so it's not just 
yes, she's a super genius. And so she's more in her element when it comes to technical things, maybe rather than um, personal. But I think it's also that, you know, a big part of her backstory is that a lot of the people who she was close to have died. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her father was dead before she was even born. Mm -hmm. And then her stepfather and her best friend were killed. Yeah, in front of her. Yes. And so I think that's part of it. it. It's not... I don't think it's so much just, oh, this is her personality. She doesn't know how to interact with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've lost many people who are really close to you. I'm sure that's going to affect how you sort of, you know, your ability to get close to other people mm-hmm. and form relationships. Yeah, and one of the things that she that gets talked about in the first couple issues of Ironheart is the sense of isolation that she feels, you know, because she's a 16-year-old super genius at MIT, so she's already unique in that way and can't relate to anyone else on on that level and she's away from home yeah she's away from home um you know she's lost her her stepfather who was you know a big influence on her she lost her best friend who may have been the most important person in sort of bringing her outside of that sort of technological shell um when she was when she was younger yeah but so over the course of the series though we do see that she has a small support system mm-hmm. in her life. And so we could talk about a couple people. So there's Xavier, her friend mm-hmm. from home, her mom, and then there's um Natalie, yeah. her her AI, which I I was totally surprised by that at the end of the first issue where you know we we learn early on in the first issue, oh, she's working on developing an AI that sort of what if it has all the qualities that are like the complete opposite of her to sort of round her out um and so the ai is complete and it's it's her childhood best friend who was killed basically it Mm -hmm. it embodies the essence of natalie um which was really cool i think as an end to the first issue i really i really like that reveal at the end you know and then she she gives it some sort of acronym that that spells out natalie (laughs) uh kind of like how something like that's something tony stark would definitely do too oh yeah (laughs) yeah and so i i another thing i love about the first issue is they spend a lot of pages toward the end it's a conversation between her and xavier her friend from back home and Mm -hmm. i think those pages are incredible on multiple levels because you learn a lot about her as a character not only through the dialogue with xavier but if you look at the what's happening in the panels they're telling you a lot about her without telling you. So she's talking to her friend and she's, you know, sitting at her desk. Her desk is super cluttered and you can tell through all the items on her desk things about her. You know, what she like to eat? You know, oh, she's a, you know, it comes up that she's a Star Trek fan. We find out what type of music she likes. We, we get a feel for her personality all through her conversation with this person. Mm-hmm. And throughout the series, Xavier, I think, is sort of, I mean, he's a really good friend to her and I think mm-hmm. he's also... A moral conscience uh, and he's definitely I think more you know as we talked about if if Riri's sort of not good at picking up on social cues Xavier really is mm-hmm. and he's, he's sort of there to sort of sometimes offer perspective like where she's not seeing it so uh, of all the characters who do you really like in her life uh, I think Xavier I like Xavier a lot I think that first conversation in the first issue sets up their relationship really well and it's sort of they were friends before but you know how people are friends but then there's like that one conversation where like things that change just a little bit and like you know they're closer and like oh hey like the relationship's different now 
And I think that that conversation was that moment for them. Um, and I think over the course of the series, he's going to be as important in sort of humanizing her as Natalie was. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking forward to seeing that happen. Her mom tried, you know, and her dad, her stepdad tried, like, hey, we get, you gotta go out, go outside and play, you know, and they could never really get her to do that. And I think Natalie was able to do that, and I think Xavier will be able to do that too. I think we should, I forgot to mention uh, another friend of hers, Deja. So mm. I think we see in the beginning of I want to say issue two or three. There's sort of a flashback to Riri's first day of high school. Where she's like 12. Yeah. And and of course, she she's like an intellectual force, which is why she's in high school at such a young age. But she's having trouble opening up her locker. Mm -hmm. And... And then there's this girl that comes, Deja, you know, an older student who helps her and is sort of looks out for her and um, is sort of a protector, I would say. And then we sort of, in, in her character arc in this series, Deja is kidnapped and now Riri's sort of the one who needs to protect her and mm -hmm. sort of, you know, the roles are reversed. And one, I love, we should add with all these characters, the artwork like the way that they we've talked a lot about the dialogue but the way that they look their hair their um Riri's outfits I love them especially I mean I I've, I've heard a little bit about this like black hair is not necessarily easy I think for a lot of black natural hair for people to get that right and so I think with Riri and with Deja and with her mom it's really on point the outfits are super on point, and so I gotta give it up to the creative team behind Ironheart because I think they're really doing an incredible job in in making these fully fleshed characters come to life. So who else do we got? Talked yeah. about Xavier. Talked about Natalie, mm -hmm. Deja. We talked about this. The champions. They bring True. them in uh, in uh, issue seven, six, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, where. She has to like go save Miles Morales, and you see their relationship. It's kind of contentious. I think, I think they respect each other. I don't know if they really like each other, but they're sort of like oh, you're a superhero too, and you live this life too. So. And like, I really, I I really enjoyed the fact that they didn't necessarily get along with each other because mm -hmm. I think oh they're they're on the champions together, and also I think some people would say oh they're both you know two young black superheroes oh yeah the, of course the two black people on the team they'll be friends and, <laughs> and no they're not you mm -hmm. know and I, because and, like yeah because black people are more than the same color <laughs> so who knew it's really subtle these choices but i think they're pretty impactful mm -hmm. and so i think so we've talked about people in places and you know just overall riri's characterization and shout out to Eve Ewing for doing an incredible job, just the, the script and the dialogue for this. And I think, too, it's not just that it's a really great script that really kind of does a good job of character development, but the artwork really matches the script. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the language, but it's Riri's facial expressions and it's her body language. It's all lining up to tell us a lot about her. And I would just say for anyone who's you know interested in checking out this comic book, just check out issue number one. Because I think issue number one is exactly what you want to see in sort of a, an issue number one. And of course, it's not necessarily Riri's origin, because as we talked about, she appears in Invincible Iron Man and Champions. But 
as in issue number one, it is tasked with sort of giving us her, her origin story and mm-hmm. the way that they do it. They do it really well where it's very sort of subtle and gradual. It's not in your face. Um, and you're not thrown with all of this at once. It happens over the course of the issue and there's just some really beautiful scenes, I think. And it does everything I think you want an issue number one to do while still feeling like a very fresh take. Um, so there's something here that's hitting all the right superhero beats, but it also feels like something utterly unique and very much Riri. It doesn't feel like anyone else. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is because of e-viewing. I think when you compare Invincible Iron Man to Iron Heart, the character, like, it's different. I think Iron Heart's more authentic and this is because of e-viewing and I think for for two reasons one she was at one point you know a black teenage girl in Chicago yeah in Chicago you know and Brian Michael Bendis like he's super talented but he's not he was like he he could never claim to have been you know you know a black teenager in Chicago let alone a black female teenager you know so I think e-viewing brings that sort of that knowledge, you know, that experience to, to writing Riri. And also, I think it has to do with the way e-viewing sort of develops the character. I do think Brian Michael Bendis did a really good job establishing who Riri is and her personality. E-viewing sort of takes it that next step and lets us see who Riri is, like, for real. It She takes sort of like the groundwork that Brian Michael Bendis laid and just sort of advanced it, you know, because she's a little bit older. She has more experience being a superhero now. You know, it's less sort of really fangirling over Iron Man and Iron Man's tech and everything and more really understanding that I'm not Tony Stark. I need to figure out who I am and what hero I'm going to be. I think you see that a little bit with some of the other characters too, where, because Eve Ewing, you know, grew up in Chicago. She knows what people in Chicago are like, you know, so you see that little, like, fleshed out character development in, in the supporting cast too. And I just think, yeah, Eve Ewing just makes the whole thing more authentic. Yeah, I think she does too. And I think what she also brings to it, aside from lived experience, she's an incredibly talented writer across multiple genres. So she writes poetry, she writes plays, she writes um, like scholarly books. Um, I feel like she writes other things. I'm trying to think. She writes everything, basically. Mm-hmm. She, she, she writes her, essays. Didn't she get a PhD from Harvard? She got a PhD in education from okay. Harvard. She's a, So she's a sociologist of education. Uh, okay. Um, she's a professor at the University of Chicago, okay. and so she's a true writer. Wow. This, through this and through. woman's got a full plate. Wow. <laughs> she's a writer. She's also writing children's books too that have not come out yet. She's a writer through and through across multiple disciplines. I think she has a craft for storytelling mm-hmm. and for writing good stories, writing good characters, um, making places and people come alive. And a lot of her work across multiple genres, I think is worth noting, is grounded in Chicago. And so having someone who has such a love for this place and for people in this place and who just wants to tell new stories is incredible. And she's also a lifelong comic book fan. And so I think we 
we see all those things come through because what we're getting in Ironheart is we're getting really great storytelling. We're getting character development. And I think it's also important to, to accentuate that it's a lot of fun, you know? Riri's going on all these adventures with, you know, her friends, with some people who maybe aren't her friends, like Miles. Mm-hmm. And it's just really exciting. Um, and so, you know, you know, by nature of this podcast, we want to emphasize what they're getting right in terms of representation and things like that. But this is, you know, it's a comic book and it's really fun and yeah. creative and adventurous. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want us to lose track of that either. Yeah. I think my favorite issue of the, of the solo title is the issue with Miles. Like, I just, I, I like the interactions they have. You know, it reminds me a lot of sort of like the one-liners you would hear in, you know, some of the MCU movies between like, <laughs> you know, Cap and, and Tony. And it's just, yeah, like, they're just fun, exciting stories. And Riri is pretty funny, I mm-hmm. think, in general. I yeah, appreciate it. Like, there were, there, were, there were two lines in, in that, the, in the Miles Morales issue, you know, so it's like, I've been working on my social skills, but being trapped here with you is a trial by fire I did not ask for. <laughs> like, I thought that was really funny. And then, like, they blow up, she, like, blows off the door <laughs> and sort of, like, yeah, anyone who has vacation home money probably has new door money. Like, I just thought, I just thought those were too, they were, like, they were funny, but I think they also show sort of, like, the development of Riri's character, you know, through, through e-viewing. Yeah, and I think, I think Riri is a very lovable character. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've seen people talk about the fact that, oh, she hasn't added, again, I think some of this is from her prior characterization under Brian Michael Bendis, which, not to take anything away from him, because he created this character, and I think this character is great. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's just a lot more nuance and layers to the character that he was not able to flesh out, that Eve Ewing and her team are able to do. And... I, I really appreciate just not only Riri's sense of humor, but I think also her, just her, her personality. She's very likable. Uh, she might be, you know, socially awkward and inept. Yeah, kind of sometimes a little standoffish. Yes, but she really does, she's, everything she's doing, it's because she cares about helping people. Mm-hmm. And she cares about helping people in multiple places. And, I, and we sort of see her sort of struggling with this realization that she can't help everybody all the time. She's just one person. She, it, it's impossible. And I think she, that's really frustrating to her. Um, sort of, you know, we've talked a bit, again, not to cast her in Tony's shadow, but to draw a comparison we see throughout, you know, Iron Man's story, this feeling of like, man, I'm a tech genius. We should be able to solve our way out of any problem. And when he's not able to do that, it's incredibly frustrating and defeating to him. And I think we see that in Riri too, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, I'd like that we see, sort of see her grapple with, even in the, the first page of issue number one, like I was never meant to fly. I was never meant to be a superhero. Like, why Why do I get to do this? Why not other people? Like, it just doesn't seem fair. And, like, how do I make sense of this this power and this responsibility? I think. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, she definitely has her strengths and, and weaknesses. Um, I think a big issue for her is the sort of taking the weight of the world on her shoulders and not letting other people share in that burden despite them like saying like let me help you she's like no and i think part of that is 
what's happened to her. I think part of it is the sort of the isolation of being who she is, being that smart. You know, like no one in the world is that smart. Like there, <laughs> like there's right. Tony Stark, <laughs> and then you know they have a lot of other characters who have who are really intelligent, but they're not on that level. Like Peter Parker wasn't on that level. Um, you know, uh, T'Challa is not on that level. <laughs> you know, I don't think Shuri is on that level. Like these are the two people who have who have this sort of level of intelligence, and so she's just. Like, she feels like no one else can do it. It has to be me. Mm-hmm. I think you see that. That's very much a, a Tony thing that we've talked about, you know, in the in the MCU movies. But I think she has those same traits, too. Yeah. and Mike, I've also heard you sort of make comparisons between Riri and Peter Parker. So talk about that. Yeah. So I think they're very similar. Um, I mean, they're both teenage superheroes at least like peter parker when he when he became spider-man he was like 16 i think she even like so she even has her own version of peter parker's maxim with great power comes great responsibility except for hers like she learned it from her stepfather you know like those that move with courage make the path for those that live in fear you know so that's sort of like her her maxim you know her mantra of like of being a hero like someone someone has to do it and I can, so it'll it'll be me, you know. But I think they even have they have more in common than just you know that. I think she has the same a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses as Peter Parker. That whole sort of social isolation thing, where she has these these powers, this suit. You know, Peter Parker had the powers of Spider Man. No one else does, you know. So someone has to do this so it's going to be me like i think they both have that same sort of attitude the whole like solo shouldering of that burden you know and like that's not like that's not a strength i don't think it's definitely a weakness because you can't do everything by yourself you know and i don't know how well peter learned that lesson i don't know if Riri will learn that lesson i hope she does but yeah i think they're just they're just two relatable characters, you know? Like, they're, they're both underdogs. They're both... Yeah, I think they're very, very similar characters. And, like, I think that's why I like Riri so much. Because I like Peter Parker a lot. And I'm like, oh, Riri's a lot like Peter Parker. I can't identify with everything uh, in her life. Like, I, you know, and I couldn't identify with everything in Peter's. But it's just... She's just a compelling, interesting character. And you root for and... You do. And she's very relatable. And, you know, she's she's flawed like any other human being. And she's also a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I think they do an excellent job of, you know, reminding you of the fact that, yeah, she's a kid. She's a teenager. She doesn't understand insurance. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm an adult and I don't understand insurance. So who can blame her? <laughs> you know, yes, being a, a, a super genius, there's still all these other things that she's still growing and learning. Mm-hmm. And I just really appreciate that they sort of maintain her innocence with all that she's able to do and all that she's seen so far. And so I'm super excited to keep reading this series and to see how this character grows and learns. And I think that's what I love is that they've set it up where it's like, you know that she has so much more to learn and to do. Oh, she's smart, but we want to see her form relationships with other people. We want to see how she's going to figure stuff out and sort of acknowledge Mm -hmm. sort of the limits of her own knowledge and push through. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think another one of her weaknesses is sort of like where she gets her motivation. So in Invincible Iron Man, there was this scene with a teacher where she was <laughs> uh, like, she raised her hand like, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And she's like, well, okay, what do you want to be? And she's like, I want to be a scientist. He's like, that's great. And he's like, what? no, you're supposed to say I can't do that. <laughs> you know, like, I think she, she gets too much of her drive in trying to prove other people wrong. Uh, really? I don't feel that way. Really? I mean, like, that's the sense, like, I sort of pick up on that a little bit. You know, definitely in that one scene. I picked up on that scene, but I actually feel like that scene feels very much not the same character that we get in the solo title series. Like, that scene just feels so weird. I remember reading that and thinking, like, why would anybody say that? Mm -hmm. I just, I can't imagine anyone saying that, especially not a young black girl. I just can't, to me, it just felt, like, really Mm -hmm. inauthentic. Mm-hmm. So I almost don't even really like it. Almost doesn't really count to me. I I have a hard time believing that 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 she would ever even say that. Like that Riri would say that, or that anyone would say that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, but she's she's you know uh, a five year old super genius. So <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, like I think I see it a little bit in her interactions with like not even in. Not even in uh, Invincible Iron Man with just, like, that one scene, but, like, her interactions with, you know, Sharon Carter. Mm-hmm. I think, like, I think Ruby's got a bit of a chip on her shoulder. She does. So, I, I think I get what you're trying to say. I just don't agree. I don't think I agree with the way that you're saying it. Okay. I think, I don't think that she's driven to prove people wrong, but I think she gets a satisfaction out of it when she's able to. I think she's very confident in, in sort of uh-huh. when, especially when it comes to... That, yeah, that might be she, that might be a better way to put it. Yeah, uh, she yeah yeah she maybe she gets too much satisfaction in that in that like when she proves someone wrong she I don't want to say she gloats but I think it be it can sort of like turn people off from her and her personality like when she does that. Yes, I think so. Um, I think she is confident in her ability to problem solve her way out of situations, and mm-hmm. usually she's able to. Um, sometimes there's consequences though that I don't think she foresees and doesn't deal with well, but I think she gets a, a satisfaction knowing that, oh, I can figure this out. I can do this. I've got, I can come up with a solution to this. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes her like persistence is off putting to people when they're like, no, you're not thinking this through. Um, especially Xavier, I think is one to be like, you can't just, you can't go, just go spy on somebody. That's an invasion of privacy, yeah. you know, or you can't just go do this or you're not thinking about this all the way. And she's just like, I think steadfast in her ability to not only one problem solve, but she's, she's problem solving in service of helping people, you know, whether it's her friend Deja, who's mm-hmm. missing or someone else, a group, you know, a group of people she's trying to save. She, nothing is going to get in the way of her trying to do that. And so I get that it's kind of off-putting to some people in some moments, but I think it's ultimately because she's trying to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I get it though. Okay, so let's do some behind-the-scenes stuff with the comic. So Eve Ewing is not a you know a comic book writer by training, despite her her many many talents mm-hmm. and her her skill at writing. Like this is this is her first comic book that she's ever written so you want to talk about about you doing a little bit sure so 
basically when, you know, Brian Michael Bendis announced, I believe, that he was leaving Marvel to go write for DC, it was sort of this question of, wait, what is going to happen to Riri? Who's going to who's gonna take up the mantle of writing this character? Uh, I think especially in the, the black nerd world, it was like, wait a minute, like, does this mean what we, we need, you know, Riri? And so the question of, well, who should, who should be hired? Who should write her? And I think it initially started on Twitter where people were like, what about Eve Ewing? Mm -hmm. She would be great. You know, it was like, oh, she's from Chicago. Like, she's an excellent writer. She's very accomplished. And then there was even jokes like she even sort of, she looks like her. She's got her hair cut. And so there was a petition that someone started on Twitter. Eve Ewing did not start the petition herself. Other people started it and circulated it. And Eve Ewing sort of like was on Twitter, you know, was like, yeah. I, I would, I'd be interested. Why, you know, I'd be open to it. It's just like put it out there in the world. And so that was that. And this was, you know, months before it was ever announced that she was officially hired. Uh, but even just like the thought of her even being considered uh, caused a, a, a bit of controversy on the internet. People felt like how among, she... Among a certain demographic. <laughs> let's, be, let's be clear here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how is she qualified? What experience does she... Yeah, she can write poetry or a book or an academic book, but how... She can't write a comic book. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates well, didn't write right, that's <laughs> a the comic thing. book before Black Panther. So I should say that her hiring is consistent with sort of Marvel, I think especially with their, their POC characters, they've hired a number of people like ta Coates mm -hmm. or Roxanne Gay or other people to write these characters who maybe had written in other mediums. Yeah. And they've done an incredible job. <laughs> and so... Yeah. Like, I feel like Marvel... So, like, I don't know that much about the behind-the-scenes work that Marvel did with, like, Ta-Nehisi Coates or, or Eve Ewing or um, Roxanne Gay. But I feel like there... So there's a certain skill set that comes with being able to write a comic book. Like, the way you write it is just different. The way a, a comic book comes together is just different. You can't just, like, write a chapter and, like, okay, I wrote a chapter. You have to... You have to there's a lot of coordination between, you know, the scriptwriter and the artist and, you know, the editor and, you know... So I just think... Mom was like, okay, well, these people can tell compelling stories. Like, let's give them the, the support staff to do the comic book-specific parts of the writing. And the sort of, like show them the ropes I guess like until they get used to writing a comic book I have to imagine like that is kind of what happened like yes and I mean it's unfortunate that we even need to say this because it should be pretty obvious to people especially grown adults but I'm certain that they weren't just like here you go here's this comic book I'm certain that she had to pitch and write stuff on spec mm -hmm. and prove herself right. as you would with the hiring process for any type of job. They're not, it's Marvel. You think they're just like handing these out? Mm -hmm. Like, here you go. Yeah. Oh, you're black. I'm sure, yeah. Like, here I'm sure she had like an outline for that first six or seven episode or, or six or seven. Absolutely. Issue you know, like this is like, this is, these are some of the events. Like, here's some of the beats that I want to hit. You know, like they just, just like hey, you're a black woman, this is a black female, here, you can... It's frankly insulting, but I think that just goes to show that these these people, let's be clear, mm -hmm. straight white men, who we're mostly talking about, comic book fans, that just because that's all you see, you know, is someone's skin color, and you're not able to, you know, see beyond that, like, to that's on you. That's that's a reflection of you and your mindset more than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was before she was even hired. And then, of course, when Eve Ewing was officially hired, you know, people were just haters. 
and it's just frankly I mean, it's racist. I, I don't know what I, it's racist and it's sexist. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like given the events of the past, you know, two weeks, like let's, let's call racist <laughs> acts racist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's nothing else about it. I love it though, because like she doesn't have to say anything because she's writing this comic book and it's been incredibly, incredibly well received for numerous reasons. And so it's like, I mean, that's like the ultimate way. I'm not that you need to prove anything to these people, but mm-hmm. there, there's your, there you go. Like, you know, you had all this to say, but who cares? And the other thing too is guess what? Of course she was not hired because she's a black woman. Like, but that representation, black people writing black characters and, you know, same goes for other, you know, racial ethnic groups, whatever. It does matter. And in fact, what you've been able to see with her writing this solo title series is I think you've seen a whole new like audience become interested in comic books. So something that I also appreciate about Eve Ewing is that she's a very active on social media, especially Twitter. And she has been for years now. And so she uses Twitter as a way to engage with fans old and new of comic books about Ironheart. And so with each issue, what she'll often do is after the issue's been out for a couple weeks, she'll sort of do a Twitter thread and sort of break down, sort of give you a behind the scenes of that issue, kind of, you know, what the thinking was behind a particular panel, you know, um, why certain choices were made, drawing your attention to something maybe you overlooked. And I think that's really exciting um, because it's it's her interacting directly with, you know, readers and fans. And it's also drawing people, like I said, you know, she writes across so many different mediums. She's got so many readers and an audience, I'm sure, people who have never read a comic book before. And people were like, this is the first comic book I ever read. This is the first, you know, reason I went into my local comic shop for the first time and, you know, started a subscription. And so what she's doing is incredible. Aside from writing an amazing book, like she's doing so much in terms of opening up the world of comics to new readers. And I don't see how you don't applaud her for that unless you're racist and or sexist. And you don't want to yeah. see. And you just and you just like gatekeeping, you know. <laughs> yeah. The more, the more people who read comic books, the more people who play board games, the more people who who you know play Dungeons and Dragons, the more people who like the things you like, like that just makes your life better, you know. And yeah. so like bringing in a whole new audience, uh, to to comic books, even if even if you know people pick up Ironheart and never pick up another comic book, like. Ever, that's still someone who has like thoughts and opinions on comic books that that could be really insightful that that you know make your understanding of the medium that much better there's going to be people who pick up this comic book and whether it's seeing riri and like reading her story or learning about eve ewing the person behind it feel like maybe i can do that too Mm -hmm. you know eve ewing is only the fifth black woman to write for marvel and (laughs) yes wow i didn't (laughs) i mean honestly like i'm kind of surprised the number is even that high you know (laughs) right um but the point the point is like we're at the very beginning Mm -hmm. and so the hope is that we see so many more representations and more people who mm-hmm. feel encouraged, like maybe I could write comic books too, or yeah. just feel maybe yeah. inspired by this story. Yeah. Six months ago, a 12 year old picked up Ironheart number one and loved it, <laughs> you know, and 20 years, she's going to be writing a comic. And like, 
like, how can you be upset at that? <laughs> you know? Like, that's a good thing. I've read inter- interviews with Eve Ewing where she talks about that. So they say to her, oh, did you ever want to write a comic book? Or, you know, what is your relationship to comic books? And, you know, she talks about being a lifelong fan since being a kid and how, you know... Her and some of her classmates would, you know, they'd say like, man, I want to write for Marvel or DC when I get older. I want to write comic books. And how she always didn't feel comfortable just coming out and saying that because it seems so implausible. Whereas, you know, maybe like a white male classmate, oh, I'm, I'm going to do this. I want to do this. Like you see yourself more not only in terms of the characters, but the the creators behind the comics. And just it didn't feel like you didn't see an example of it. So it's really hard to believe that you could do that. Um, and so... If nothing else, she is hopefully paving the way for people, like you said, to come after her. And that's that's incredible. And I think she's aware of that and she's intentional about that. She doesn't want to be the only one. She doesn't want, you know, doesn't want, oh, I'm number five. Yay. Look at me. This is great. It's like, let's like increase that number exponentially over, Mm -hmm. you know, the next, you know, several years, decades. And why not? Like why, I think sometimes two people have this like scarcity mindset where it's like, oh my God, like all these, you know, more diverse writers and voices and comic books, what's happening as if it's like, there's a limited amount of comics that we can have. Mm-hmm. Like they're not like, as if there's not room for everyone who's interested. Right. Why not? Like, why are we like operating almost on like the scarcity mindset? Like she, her being hired is going to take away from someone else. Like, yeah. I mean, let, let me know when 13% of American comic book writers are, <laughs> are black, you know, because it's not right now, you know. Um, to say nothing of, you know, other, you know, racial and ethnic groups. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And like, I will, like, I'll concede that there's a finite number of physical comic books that can be, that can be written, you know, just because they cost money. And if you want to... If you want to produce a physical comic book, you have to, you know, invest in it. And if people aren't buying that comic book, it, you know, but we live in the world of the internet, <laughs> you know, the, the cost of, you know, a web comic is, you know, it's, it's the, the effort you put into making it. And then a, like a hosting fee, you know, the cost, you know, the cost of a web comic is nowhere near the cost of a physical, you know, comic book. So there's there's plenty of room for for characters or I'm sorry, for um creators to 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 make what you know the the comics they want to make or the movies they want to make there there is room for people to be creative just because ebuing gets hired to write ironheart doesn't mean that the white guy comic book writer is out of a job he can still create and yeah or even just the idea of well who is qualified to be a comic book writer Mm -hmm. you know what what skill sets does that entail you know and just I think the important thing to understand too you know with all the controversy and contention over e-viewings higher and you know other facets of this you know comic book is that we like to think sometimes that oh as we you know we become more progressive over time we see more change over time more diversity over time we're certainly I think in a moment right now where we're seeing a lot of diversity not only in the comic books comic book movies like like racial and ethnic diversity in particular especially i think with african-american creators characters stories 
but it's not guaranteed that we're going to keep moving in sort of this like linear trajectory of a continuous improvement and representation over time. So I think we just have to keep pushing. We have to keep celebrating these things and uplifting them and supporting them and continue to push forward and just know that there's, there's probably always going to be people who take issue with it, Mm -hmm. but you keep doing it because guess what? For like those little black girls who read this Mm -hmm. and they see themselves in it and they get excited about something whether it's comic books whether it's going to mit one day becoming an engineer whatever that i feel like that that makes it all worth it who cares honestly Um, stay mad (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i guess what do we want to see going forward with riri well what is what is the one that the one thing you want to see i mean i want to see it too but what do you what do you really do, want to say? Like in the MCU, is that what we're getting yeah. at? I mean, yeah, of course, <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. I yeah. want to see. I think, like I mentioned, I was a little underwhelmed with uh, the Phase Four announcement. I think this is a big missed opportunity for Marvel. I think, I think, give it time. I think it'll happen. You know, because something I had to think about is like, I mean, if they had her in a movie. Aside from the solo title series, you know, we, you know, which has had, I think they're on issue number eight right now, and then of course, you know. Invincible Iron Man, Champions. Like mm-hmm. I wanna I wanna see Eve Ewing tell some more stories so they have more to pull from if and when they introduce her into the MCU. That that's fair, I guess. I don't know. I just I feel like Mar- like the MCU and Marvel have played it really safe with their movies. Like they didn't announce a solo female movie until long after they had received a lot of criticism for it you know they didn't announce black panther until long after they received criticism for not having a majority black movie they had an opportunity here where the like the story situation in the mcu like you have this opportunity to bring in someone and also have a sort of backdoor way to keep rdj involved in the mcu and they just I think they played it scared and you know it was a missed opportunity like, I, think, I think that's a valid critique I don't know I, I wouldn't count it out just yet yeah. I do think it's possible yeah I mean um, I, I get where you're coming from with uh, wanting Eve Ewing to tell more stories just so they have more like more but yeah but, but that's on. not to say that if they didn't introduce her now that they can't bring Eve Ewing on to help write the script yeah. you know so I, I, I see your point yeah, also that would, be, that would be cool like hey like, <laughs> yeah I'm gonna write a movie script now because, I mean yeah. I, I don't think that there's anything that she can't write so yeah. I'm I'm totally here for it uh-huh. um, so that's I think that's what we want to see and again I, I'll say never say never Robert Downey Jr. has come out and said that yeah. he'd like to see Ironheart in the MCU I think I saw something that said Tom Holland also commented on that, but I didn't see the original interview where he said that, so mm-hmm. I'm, that's kind of unconfirmed. And then Kevin Feige has also commented on this and was like, oh, I'm, I'm definitely interested to see how the character continues to evolve in the comics. Mm-hmm. Sort of like a never say never. Like, yeah. I think it's an opportunity to have a sort of... So you can have you can take like Homecoming or Far From Home, have like these fun teenage movies, but like in a different setting. You know, and also, and also have you know, what is what is essentially you know the, like a lot of the like the the Iron Man visuals. Like I mm-hmm. think you know a lot of people enjoy the like that part of of the MCU. I just I don't know. I'm I'm a little I'm a little disappointed that they didn't they didn't take a risk 
And I don't think it would have been that big of a risk. I think people would have flipped <laughs> if, if they had announced Ironheart. You know, like, not even, like, oh, we're going to have, you know, XYZ play Ironheart. Like, just, just announcing Ironheart. Like, mm-hmm. she will be, she's a character. Like, we're expecting it to come out in spring 2024 or something. Right, because by then... You'll have a ton of... Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know, maybe maybe issues. next year at Comic-Con when they're, like, finishing up, when they, like, announce the rest of Phase 4 or, like, whatever it is, like, that's when they'll announcement, announce it. But, I don't know, I just, I'm, I'm a little disappointed they didn't do it this time. But if they did, if they did it in the MCU, I really, really hope they don't sort of um, do a sort of like an amalgamation of characters and make Shuri is Ironheart. I don't want them to do that. I don't want to, I don't want them to do that either. Yeah. I mean, we've just, we spent a good portion of this episode talking about how place, specifically mm-hmm. Chicago, is such a big part of Riri's story. Mm-hmm. And I think that you cannot yeah. take, take away the fact that not only Chicago, but just more generally african-american i don't think you can take that you know so shuri is very different also shuri is a princess yeah i feel like we've, we've talked about that uh in previous episodes where you know one of the one of the interesting things to see is how uh like heroes without the resources of you know tony stark or without the resources of t'challa and wakanda like what like what do they do how do they like how do they do it and so- and just a quick plug, uh, next month in August, there I, I think the next issue of Ironheart that's coming out is Ironheart Shuri team up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ironheart goes to Wakanda. Okay. Um, but I agree with you. Also, I mean that would be what what did we say also earlier that you can't conflate two young black teenage superheroes. Yeah. They're not interchangeable. They're not gonna you know. And mm-hmm. so I think it would be insulting to think that you can just kind of, oh, kind of merge yeah, aspects like, oh, of Ironheart hey, into Shuri. Hey, young black woman good with technology. They're the same character. Like, no. No, they're not. Right. So, um, I I will protest <laughs> outside Marvel Studios if they do that. Yeah. Um, but, so to focus on Riri, I, I think I, going forward, I just want to see how Riri navigates relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's dating whether it's you know if we get her back in boston and see her at mit we've seen how she interacts with the dean but what about other people on the campus what Mm -hmm. about classmates yeah because she like in the first issue she was invited out to to dinner with some of the some of the other students and she turned them down uh i wonder now if she's gonna sort of understand that she like she needs other people in her life you know because i mean humans are social or social creatures. I mean, and to your point earlier, Mike, you know, she is a super genius. She definitely is kind of isolated by that fact that she can't connect with a lot of people on that level. Now, MIT, there's some pretty smart people there. Yeah. So, you know, maybe maybe she's able to connect with some of her classmates there and they can at least bond when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, technology and inventions and things like that and so I, I definitely want to see her on navigate kind of new social situations both in Chicago and you know back at MIT mm-hmm. yeah and like I kind of want to see Riri just be just be a person you know be be a 16 17 18 year old and get excited about the things you 
get excited about and just yeah. have fun. I want to see Riri go, you know, go to a Comic-Con and mm-hmm. cosplay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Can you imagine just, like, she, like, goes to San Diego Comic-Con, like, lands and just, like, steps out of a suit and she's wearing, like, a Gordy costume <laughs> with the visor right. and everything. Like, yeah, like... I want to see that, yeah. Yeah, that'd be... That That would be... I think it'd be a, a funny callback to the first issue and also just like kind of bordering on absurd thing but whatever she's 17 and wants to go to san diego comic-con yeah and to that point i definitely want to see her more in her element just like what does she do for fun again Mm -hmm. issue number one we get a lot of good hints of that but i just want to see it more you know whether it's her maybe she goes to the the record store you know just little things like that Mm -hmm. um yeah goes goes and picks up a a tribe vinyl or something (laughs) and i have full confidence that Eve Ewing is going to give that to us. Um, and so I can't wait. Anything else? No. That we want to see? I mean, I just want to keep seeing more. I genuinely love this comic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's so exciting to me. Something that I think we do really quickly want to just uplift a little more is the artwork. Because we talk a lot about Eve Ewing. and it, But as you said, Mike, a comic book is the creation of a huge team of people, writers, editors... And illustrators. Um, And maybe I'm biased, but I think the colors and and everything in this comic book are really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, Truly. They not only help tell the story, but they're just, they're gorgeous to look at. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's really, it's really bright. It's like, I like her, like her, like armor coloration, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's different than, than Tony's. I really like how in, uh, Invincible Iron Man, they sort of like foreshadowed it because there's a a meeting with Pepper Potts on a rooftop and like the sun setting. And so like, it makes her armor look purple and yellow Mm -hmm. instead of like red and yellow. And I thought that was, I thought that was cool. So I think that's our episode for the week. We hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you like the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you about today's episode, past episodes, and future episodes. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that through emailing us at nerdversusnerdpod at gmail.com. So that's nerdvsnerdpod at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at nerdversusnerdpod. And so for our next episode, Mike, what are we going to talk about? We're going to be talking about Veronica Mars, (laughs) one of my all-time favorite TV shows. Uh, Season four dropped on Hulu on Friday, a week early. I was super surprised at that. Um, I had been in the middle of a Veronica Mars rewash to get ready for season four. Uh, I put the rewash on hold and just start the the new season. So I'm really looking forward to that because, again, one of my all-time favorite shows. So that'll be next time on Nerd vs. Nerd. We'll see you then. All right. Bye. Bye.